Father, we come before you just grateful that we can be here together assembled to sit under your word. And Father, your word is your means of shaping us and motivating us to engage in the mission that you have for us. And as we talk about going into the world, the importance of reaching the lost and building the church and being prepared for ministry, I pray that this will motivate those who are already engaged in the fight, that it will encourage those who are on the fringes to, to get into the fight. And I pray for those on the outside that they will be, well, eventually one to, to join us as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tomorrow is a big day for our church. Uh, one Tanner Standewick is going to be joining staff as a director of college ministry. So, yeah, all the college students are very excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> Pam and Steve are very excited about that. I'm excited about that, right? It's a cause of a celebration that one of our own who's gone away to, to seminary in North Carolina is going to return to finish his studies and to prepare himself for a lifetime of full-time ministry. And so with that in the back of my mind as I'm thinking about how to prepare him, I was really struck how Jesus takes time to prepare his disciples to enter the mission field and be prepared for ministry. And he does so in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick, heal the sick in it, and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. Whenever you enter the town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So this is the second wave of disciples. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6, Jesus commissions and sends out the original 12, right? He gives them power and authority over spirits, power to heal and to proclaim the kingdom of God is near, and then they go out. Here we see a second wave where 70 or 72, depending on your translation, are being sent out. They are being prepared for the ministry. Jesus has roughly six months to go before he's going to go to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and then eventually ascend into heaven. And the work of ministry, of building the church, of proclaiming the kingdom, is going to continue through his successors. And what's really interesting about this is how Jesus 
is broadening the pool of who is to do ministry. Now, there are some churches where, and this is not the case here, but the understanding is that the pastor or the minister is the one who does the ministry. Do you guys know these kinds of churches? My job is to give to the church and then tell the minister, so-and-so needs to be visited in the hospital. You know, pastor, so-and-so would really appreciate it if you were to go ahead and call them up. Pastor, there's a friend of mine who needs the Lord. Can you go talk to him for me? You know, pastor, the, the lawn's a little bit long. Do you think you can take care of that? And so these pastors fold the bulletins. They stuff the envelopes. They count the money. They preach the sermon. And everyone is fine with that arrangement. Now, that is not the case here. Right? I, I look at the participation rate in our church, and it is awesome. So many of you are super committed to ministry. You don't see ministry as something to delegate to somebody else, but you see it as a privilege for yourselves to engage in, right? But to do ministry well, it does take a certain degree of preparation. For instance, Tanner went off to North Carolina to get some seminary education so that he can be um, skilled in the art uh, of preaching and he's going to continue learning the languages so that he can be equipped fully for that ministry and so here when jesus is about to send out the 70 he's broadening the scope it's going to go beyond just his disciples remember when john saw the non-certified apostle casting out demons and he goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, there's a guy over here who's casting out demons and he doesn't belong to us. Remember what Jesus says? Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When Jesus is going along the road and he sees a prospective disciple, he says in Luke 9, 59, Lord, he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. Remember, he's making the excuse by going to a funeral. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So part of being a disciple is not just following Jesus, but there's this idea of the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Everyone who is saved and remains on the earth has a job to do, right? This is a place to equip you for the work of the ministry to proclaim the kingdom of God. And we do this collectively as a church, right? We all work together as a body of Christ to proclaim, to equip, to build up the body of Christ so that we can go out into all the nations. Now, in this case, before there's a church, he's sending out missionaries. Missionaries to a place where there is no gospel witness who are going to proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, as we look through this preparation for ministry, I think it'd be very easy for us to think that this applies to missionaries alone. But all of these commands that we're about to see not only apply to missionaries, but to the church as well. The thing is, we have these extra commands that apply to the church. Does that make sense? We have these extra commands that apply to the church for for building up the body of Christ, but that same call to go into all the world is still there for all of us. We're all part of the project. And so how do we get prepared for ministry? What are some convictions that Jesus tells these would-be missionaries that would apply to us as well? Well, I think there's really four central commands to be on mission to prepare for ministry. Number one is do not work alone. Two, proceed with caution. Four, depend on God. 
and, or three, depend on God, and fourth, faithfully proclaim the truth. Do not work alone, proceed with caution, depend on God, and faithfully proclaim the church. These are four things that you need to do to be prepared for whatever ministry you engage in, right? Might be you're going off to college, you might be going to the public schools, might be going to work. You might be called to full-time ministry, right? These are four things to prepare you for your ministry. And I'm assuming that you're on board and you know that there is a need to share the gospel with all the world. So as you go, do not work alone. Do not work alone. Look at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now, there is some discrepancies between 70 and 72. It can really go either way. 70, I think, is probably the preferred number. It coincides with Numbers chapter 11, where Moses is overworked and overwhelmed, and so the Lord appoints 70 elders to assist Moses in the ministry. So here is the idea is that Jesus is multiplying himself, because there is a big job to do. There is, uh, there is a harvest that is so plentiful that there's not enough laborers for it. Now, given the size of the harvest, it would make sense for Jesus to say, all of you go your own way because you'll cover more ground that way, right? It'd be more efficient to go in 70 different directions instead of 35 different directions, So why does he tell them to go out two by two? Well, some people think that it might be rooted to Deuteronomy 19.15, that it's by the testimony of two witnesses that every fact is confirmed, and that could be. But I think it it might be more anchored in the wisdom that we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Two are better than one. Have you ever noticed when you read Acts, that is Paul and Barnabas or James and John or Priscilla and Aquila, right? There's an idea that you work together, you reinforce one another it's always better to go out as a team, right? When you are going into a new context where no one knows the Lord, having that companionship there, to have that fellowship, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds is essential to the long-term survival of any minister. And this requires that you become a team player. You become a a team player. Now, I was a missionary for two glorious years in Hungary, but it almost didn't happen. They had an exhaustive application process, and I had to submit five references. Naturally, thought I would be, I thought I'd be a shoo-in. I was leading a couple of Bible studies at KU. You know, I thought I was very impactful and wonderful. I'd be a blessing to any mission team I was on. Just ask me. And I got a call from headquarters, and the person on the other line was rather tepid about my application. I'm like, why are you tepid? You, you should be excited. Yeah, I didn't say this out loud. I thought it to myself. 
And he said, do you realize that all five of your references put lack of, lack of tact and sensitivity as your greatest weakness? It's like, what? Yeah, all five said that you lack tact and sensitivity. That's a big problem. You know what? And he, he was right. I mean, because when we were going to basically live in Hungary, it was going to be like a reality show where you have six singles together. It was actually four singles and a married couple together trying to reach a campus. We would live in the same proximity, vacation together, worship together. I mean, it was going to be a very close working relationship. And if I was going to lack tact and sensitivity, not be agreeable, I would be a problem and basically destroy the mission. So that's why when you work together, there is a sense where if you're self-centered, given to a critical spirit, you have a gruff demeanor, you're petty, you're easily offended, or if you lack tact and sensitivity, that's a big problem. Missions work is to be a joint enterprise where we all work together. We don't, we don't work alone. We go out as laborers together to recruit laborers. Look at verse 2. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Right, the harvest is plentiful. There's more fruit than anyone can pick. Right, it'd be like the apple orchard. That's just has a, has a bounty of fruit hanging on the trees. And, and if you don't get to it in time, what's going to happen to the apples? They're going to rot. The idea here is that there's so many people, so much fruit that's out there, there's, that, not all, that you can't get it all. This is a problem. So what are they to do? Well, first of all, they are to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That the strategy is, the Lord needs to raise up more laborers. And this means, number one, this is something that the Lord does, right? When you're in a desperate state, what do you do? You pray. You pray that the Lord does something to multiply the workers. Secondly, Jesus makes it very clear that he's not the answer, right? Don't ask me to go out into the harvest. You need to find laborers, plural, to go out into the harvest. You need to expand this circle of the 70 to equip more people to go out into the harvest fields. Now, one of the most influential books that I've ever read was The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. Anybody read that? I, it's an oldie but goodie. But it's, a, it's by a seminary professor who surveyed the methods of Jesus. And he poses this question. What would be more effective? Leading one person to Christ every day for the rest of your life or leading one person to Christ every year, and then the following year, the two of you lead two more to Christ, then the following year, the four of you lead four people to Christ, and you kind of go from there. What's the more effective strategy? We all know it's number two, right? Because in 33 years, you'll reach over 8 billion, pe 8 billion people. So there's this idea where it's not enough to have you just getting converts Right? There is a strategy of taking these converts and equipping them to do the work of ministry that you're about to do. Right? Jesus started off as one, 
then he multiplied to 12, and now he's multiplying to 70. There's an idea of spiritual multiplication where he is equipping them to go out into the harvest. The idea is that we don't work alone. We work with people and we equip people to join us in this gospel work, this ministry of the gospel. And as we go out, you are to proceed with caution. And this is a real interesting point. Look at verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, their view of wolves is similar to our view of wolves, right? When you read a fairy tale, the wolf is always the bad guy. They're predatory, savage dogs that would love to feast on nothing more than little lambs. And so he's telling them, you are the lambs, they are the wolves. I'm sending you out in this reality. I mean, they will divide villages. They will make enemies, powerful enemies, who will use their power to take them out. That is the reality that we live in. So let's say you have a missionary who's going to go to the Middle East. If he were to take the direct approach and just have a very public ministry, he won't live long enough to tell people about it. Right? There, there is a sense where you're shrewd as serpent, as innocent as doves, where, where obviously God loves martyrs. He has a special regard for martyrdom. But when you read the scriptures, martyrdom is not something that people seek. Even Jesus, when people tried to kill him before his hour, would escape. Paul, when people tried to take his life, would escape. The church would scatter to avoid the persecution. Martyrdom is not something that you rush into. You don't test God. There's a sense of shrewdness. If you go to communist China, you have to discern, is this person really interested in the gospel? Or is he or she a communist party member who's trying to out me? In our context, right, shrewd churches seek legal counsel to make sure that we are protected from people who want to do us harm. There's context. I remember a number of years ago, I got this random uh, email from somebody who wanted to know about our church's stance on homosexuality. And so I just told him. And then he started to push back. There was something that wasn't quite sitting well with me. This guy seemed to be picking a fight. And so I told him, I would love to continue this conversation in person. Do you know why I said that? I did not want a paper trail that this person would use against me. As it turns out, this person was uh, trained to debate pastors on the issue of homosexuality. He was looking for a fight. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He is seeking some ways to compromise our ministry, right? I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves. There is a place where you need to discern the difference between hogs and dogs and those who really want to know the Lord. That's just the reality that you have to that you have to deal with, right? A live dog is better than a dead lion. <laughs> but don't allow the adversary and the presence of adversaries to stop you from going out, right? You proceed with caution. Doesn't mean that you don't go. It's just that you proceed with caution. And as you do, you depend on God. You depend on God. Look at verse four. Carry no money bag, 
no knapsack, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So don't take your wallet. Don't pack an overnight change of clothes. Don't take an extra pair of sandals and greet no one on the road. What's the emphasis there? The emphasis is on urgency. Leave right away. Right now you are to leave and get on that plane to Afghanistan. Don't even pack your bags. Right? That's the sense of urgency. And, and it really comes out when it says greet no one on the road. I mean, think about it this way. You're going to have some people over. And so you make a triple brownie, double fudge, chocolate delight. You put it in the oven. It's baking for 40 minutes. And you think to yourself, we don't have any milk. So what do you do? You've got 40 minutes to get into Walmart, get the milk, and get out. So you start your mission 10 minutes you're at Walmart. Five minutes, you're in the store, and you see a long talker. They make eye contact with you. You guys know who they are. You might be that person. <laughs> it's like they grab you, and they're like, I'm never going to let you go. or take a break in the conversation. I'm going to speak continuously. Like, These are people who don't even take a breath, so you can't even just interject, right? You don't even greet that person. You're on a mission. You get the milk. You get out so you can get it back in time to make sure the house doesn't burn down and you don't run the brownies. Right? So that's the idea. There is such urgency that you need to get to this place to prepare this place for my arrival. There is an urgency to the message and the method. Now, this carries its own problems. If you leave right away, how are you going to eat and where are you going to sleep? And that's where Jesus tells them in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him, but if not, it will return to you. So you give a greeting. He goes, you, know, you guys know the, the Hebrew greeting? You say, shalom, which literally means peace. Right? It's offering peace. In this case, he's offering peace with God. And if somebody hears his greeting of peace and says, I want that for me, they will welcome you into their home. They will extend hospitality. They will meet your needs. They will feed you, give you shelter. And if you find that, you just stay there. But what happens if you offer peace to somebody and they don't want it? Well, it gets rescinded. One Old Testament example of this would be Nabal. You guys know who Nabal is? Very rich, wealthy landowner. David was on the run from Saul. He was hiding in the mountains. And as he was hiding in the mountains, he and his men basically protected Nabal's flock. No one stole any of his flock. No animals took care of it. He, under David's protection, right, Nabal prospered. And so he sends some men and asks, would it be possible for us to get some food? And Nabal says, no. And the wrath of David gets all worked up. And if it wasn't for the intercession of Abigail, Nabal's wife, there would have been blood on the soil. Right? He rejected the offer of peace and was met with wrath. So the idea is if you offer someone these terms of peace and they don't want it, that gets rescinded. You minister to the people who actually want it. And when you are there, 
You remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from... Note, a laborer is worthy of his wages. I'll ask from this in 1 Timothy 5.18, where he teaches the importance of paying your pastor. Somebody who brings the message is entitled to some remuneration. Think about it. What is the best thing to ever happen to you? Your marriage, your children, maybe your job, your friends, the Chiefs drafting Pat Mahomes. Well, how about your salvation? Right? Is it safe to say that that is the best thing to ever happen to you? Are you grateful to God for the gift of salvation? Are you grateful to God for perhaps that individual or that person who introduced you to the gospel? Right? It makes sense that if you're really grateful to God that, that you would want to show that appreciation through acts of generosity towards that person. In fact, you'd even want him to, or her, to be free to tell others as well so that they could spread the good news. That's why when you support a church plant, eventually, those people who are one to the Lord and one to Christ, they are the ones who are to start providing for their pastor to the one who introduced them to the gospel because that laborer is worthy of his wages. So that's part of the design. You are to rely on other people, and it is appropriate for the people one to Christ to turn around and try to support the work. And when you find that one house, you stay there. They're not to go from house to house and try to get rich, right? It's to be content with the provision that the Lord has given you. Fourth, faithfully proclaim the truth. Now, Jesus returns to the theme of eating with, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. This is pretty interesting. He's giving them specific instruction that when they bring you into a home and there's a spread before you, you eat it. Why would that even be an issue? Well, for one, the dinner table was the social center of the community. Before they had TVs, plays, but, you know, other forms of entertainment, you would bring in a guest, you would entertain him, and he would be the entertainment. That's why Jesus always had an audience. People would have him over. We always talk about him eating with tax collectors and sinners. He also ate with the Pharisees. He would be at the dinner table, eating, talking, having an easy conversation throughout the night, and he'd be teaching that way. And that is the idea here, is there to be in the home, eating and teaching in almost a private ministry of the word. And Jesus makes it very clear that the food on the table should not concern you. The food on the table should not concern you. Now, for generations, the Hebrews were taught that certain food is out of bounds. Never eat shrimp. You shall not eat bacon. No meat and cheese together. You have to keep it kosher. And part of that was God's protection to make them a separate people. 
But now they're going to reach a time, and I think this actually signals towards that, where what is put before them should not be a deterrent. Peter is to eat unclean food so that he can be in the presence of these Gentiles he's trying to reach. Paul gives instruction in eating food sacrificed to idols so that they can have that table fellowship. And so the idea is you don't want food to be the issue. You want the gospel to be the issue. You eat what's set before you. Now, practically, let's say you have a friend, a nice Japanese exchange student, and he decides to have you over for dinner. And this is a big deal to him. So you sit down, and you actually recline because you're doing it Japanese style. You take off your shoes. You do all of the customs. And before you is a spread of raw tuna, raw octopus, and raw eel. For the love of Christ, eat it. Right? For the love of Christ, eat the food. You'll live. Now, if you've got a shellfish allergy, I disavow that, okay? <laughs> I don't want to be culpable for your death. I mean, that's being, you know, legal matters. But do you know what I'm saying? If you're not allergic to it, then you eat it. You will live. You will live. Don't insult your host before you have a chance to offer the gospel. Make sure that only the gospel offends. So, he tells them further to heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So it goes from the, the private ministry to the public ministry. It's healing the sick. It's basically pushing back on the curse. Right? Sin has cursed this planet. The wages of sin is death. And one of the means that death comes for us all is through sickness. And so one of the signs that the kingdom is coming is by pushing back on the curse, by healing sickness and saying the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now what's interesting is he doesn't say the kingdom of God is here. He says the kingdom of God is near. There's a difference. Like you have some relatives coming over. They're making the long trip, in our case, from California. We're getting updates that they are near. And as they get near, right, there's excitement, there's preparation, there's making the guest room, making sure that everything is in order because they are near. But then it's going to change from near to here, right? So he's talking about the kingdom of God. This will be a time of wealth and prosperity, the restoration of Israel. That is near. And the reason why it's near is because the king is here. And eventually, this king will bring what's near here. The kingdom of God is near. The king is right over there. Get the guest room ready. And how do you get the guest room ready? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. To prepare for this king and his kingdom, you need to be a subject to the king. And that is done by surrendering to your self-will and your self-rule over your life and allowing Jesus to be your ruler and king. That is the preparation. Now, not everyone's going to receive that. People are bent to want to live their own way. Verse 10, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, 
Go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. All right, that's quite an indictment, right? They walk out and they just kind of, it's an indictment. This is contaminated. It was, it was taught that when holy people would walk through a, a Gentile pagan land, they would kick off their dust because they don't want any of that filth to go with them into the promised land. You reject the king who is near, he will reject you. Now notice, they're not the ones doing vengeance, right? Remember John and James tried to do that, called on fire from heaven? There's no repent or die evangelism strategy here. It's repent, otherwise you'll have to contend with the Lord. It's one final appeal to their conscience. And Jesus warns, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Right? Sodom did not have a good reputation. They were judged for their sins against God. And it was non-reversible. It came, they were destroyed. Now, what's really interesting about this is Jesus is signaling what kind of response? Rejection. Right? Often when we want to go out and start a ministry, we think about the large crowds that fill the pastures with George Whitfield or the, the stadiums that were filled by Billy Graham, right? Or, or the auditoriums that were, were filled by some of our favorite preachers, and we think that is going to be the future of ministry. But Jesus doesn't say, rent these larger spaces. He says, be prepared to be rejected, and this is what you do. A lot of the hard work of ministry and what makes it difficult is you can expect rejection. You can expect it. But you still preach the gospel. You can still say to those who reject it, the kingdom of God was near. You were this close. You were this close. And you pushed it away. So how do you keep motivated when you know the end result's going to be rejection. You look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, even Jesus, he was rejected at the end of his life. He did get another crowd, but the crowd wanted his crucifixion. Even Paul died alone, right? How do you stay motivated? Well, you faithfully preach the gospel because you know that it is the means by which you must be saved, right? Seeing people come to Christ is obvious motivation. Right? Every time we see the waters of baptism stirred, we're like, this is awesome. This is why we do the ministry. Right? That's obvious. I don't need to motivate anybody for that. But what about when people reject you? Well, they're not rejecting you, are they? They're rejecting the Lord, and they're rejecting the message. And this glorifies God in a couple ways. Number one, his gospel and his justice is glorified. No one... When you share the gospel with someone and they reject it, they'll stand before the Lord and the Lord will say, you know what? George Sleazer on this date told you about the gospel and you rejected it. It's nobody's fault but yours. You knew and you rejected it, right? That glorifies the justice of God. Two, God is glorified by your faithfulness. When you do something that's hard, something that's difficult, something that will lead to possible personal rejection, and you say the Lord is still worth it? He is honored by that. See, our, our job is not to make converts. Our job 
is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2.16 that when we share the gospel to one where the fragrance from death to death and to the other fragrance from life to life, some people will love you for the message you bring and others will hate and despise you for the message you bring. But that's between them and the Lord. If our job was to make converts, you can never do it because who can change the human heart, right? Do you pray for their salvation? Yeah, we pray because that's beyond our scope. We can't do it. If we can make converts, this church wouldn't be this size, right? That's not our job. Your job is to be faithful and allow the Lord to work. Salvation comes by hearing the word of God. By hearing Christ, you throw it out there, you find the people to whom it's the smell of life, you bring them in and you equip them to join you in that work. That is the simple strategy. So knowing this, Jesus is sending out the 70 just like he sent out the 12. They're going to be rejected. Many of them will be martyred. All of them will meet the teeth of opposition and they will suffer. And so we look at this for ourselves and the call to gospel ministry, like if you just want to be a nice Christian and live a simple life then, and not really tell anybody about Jesus, then yeah, you can probably coast and enjoy this world. But if you really want to take this call to ministry seriously, it, it will lead to a cost. Some of you go into full-time vocational ministry. Um, you may not get that high-paying job you want. There might be a certain degree of self-impoverishment as you are laying up treasure in heaven. You won't buy your, the boat you've always wanted or you might have to downgrade your vacation to camping. I don't know. You're burdened just by the, the weight of ministry. You ever thought about that? When you're part of this community, you counsel people, you witness to people. There is a weight that comes with that. A preoccupation, knowing the gravity of what we're facing. What happens if this person drifts and goes this way? Going around knowing that people are going to hell, right? That is weighty. You risk relationships when you tell people about Jesus. You risk relationships when you confront somebody and say, brother, where you're going is not good. There is a cost to being faithful. So why do it? Why do it? Well, it's an expression of the two great commandments. Later on in Luke, starting verse 10, chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How would you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and live, right? What's the greatest commandment? Is to love the Lord. Secondly, to, to love your neighbor. You look at Jesus when he looked upon Jerusalem, knowing that they would reject him, what did he do? He wept. He had compassion on them. One of the most convicting passages in the Bible is Romans 9, 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. 
Right? He'd be willing to go to hell if possible to rescue these people who hate him and want him dead. Right? If you love people, if you care about people, you'll want to meet their greatest need, right? And whether people know it or not, hell is a real place and they're going there apart from their embrace of the gospel. So that's one. Secondly, we do it because we love the Lord. We love the Lord. One, if you love me, Jesus says, you will do what? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. He commands you to go out. There's love right there. But I think there's another principle too. There's a sense when you really love someone or something, you want other people to love him too. When you really admire something, you can't really stop talking about them. Case in point, grandchildren. Grandchildren. Find somebody who has a new grandchild, two years and younger, and ask him, tell me about your grandchild. And then buckle up for the next 60 minutes. There will be timelines, pictures, videos, stories, and a coherent argument about why their grandchild is unusually prodigious in some way. That's just the way it works. When you love someone, you want the whole world to know, right? Am I right, grandparents? I'm not there yet, but I've been around enough of you to know. <laughs> you know, there is a sense where when you love the Lord, you want others to love him too. There is a reverence and admiration that you want to share. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are known is known to God. And I hope is known also to your conscience, right? Knowing the fear of the Lord. He's not doing that because he's afraid of the Lord. Perfect love casts out fear. There's no condemnation there for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has not given us a spirit of, of fear to fall back into slavery, but a spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. When he says fear, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing who our Father is, knowing that he's the greatest thing to ever happen to me, I try to persuade as many people as I can to embrace that as well. Right, that's what we're called to. I mean, at some point in time, we're going to stand before the Lord. Not in judgment. Not in judgment. But in account for how we leveraged what we had in this life to build up his church, to announce his kingdom, and to bring in a harvest of souls. And nobody on that day will say, I wish I played more video games. Right? Now, there's a place for that. I don't want to be a spoil sport. There's a place for recreation. But do you know what I'm saying? It's like, what is the driving purpose of your life? What gets you up in the morning? What is it that the Lord wants you to invest in, right? Being part of ministry, building up the church, and seeing people reach for the kingdom is the greatest privilege in all of our lives. And, and God could have just done it on his own. He could have just had Jesus do it. He could have just zapped people. But he wants you to participate in it, to be changed by it, to be a part of it. You see, preparation for ministry is just part of being a Christian. It's not something for Christians. It's not something that you'll get to later. It's what you've been called to right away. My invitation to all of you is to start to see yourself that way. And many of you do. But to consider... How does the Lord want me to go beyond 
being, let's say, a consumer, but being somebody who serves, ministers, and builds up and equips other culture for this, other, I'm sorry, other people for, for this great project of ministry. While we prepare Tanner, right, and that's a collective effort of ours, we're also preparing ourselves, preparing others, so we can participate in the greatest privilege, which is to be ambassadors for the king, to be sent to announce his kingdom. Let's pray. Well, Father, I come before you grateful for this church and grateful for their buy-in and their determination to be fully-fledged disciple-makers. Lord, there's so many people here who give of their time and efforts and resources to build up the body of Christ, to reach the lost. And, and I pray that um, in some way those people will be encouraged to excel still more and to equip others to do the same. I want to appeal, Lord, on behalf of those who are maybe on the outside looking in, for those who perhaps in their ignorance thought that wasn't really for me, that you'll give them the courage and the conviction that they too can be disciple makers. And for those who perhaps have had their lives out of alignment, perhaps have the wrong priorities, I pray them that you'll just give them a singular vision for your greatness and the need to tell the nations about this kingdom to come. Prepare all of our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.